Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, DFR's Rumble, we will be speaking with opposing industry representatives, asking hard questions and facilitating a polite argument. In this episode, Paul Axtell and Greg Carnarvon explore the history and current practice of dynamic pile testing. Sponsored by ECA. Welcome to DFI's podcast, Broadcasting Common Ground. I'm Lucky Nagarajan, and welcome to Rumble, where we ask two guests to enter the arena and go toe-to-toe on topics relevant to our industry. The referee facilitates the discussion. In this episode, Sebastian Lobo Guerrero referees the discussion between Paula Axtell, COO, Senior Principal Engineer, Dan Brown and Associates out of Kansas, Greg Caniwan, Technical Principal, Senior Project Manager, S&ME out of South Carolina. Sebastian, can you give us a hint of what is in store for us today? Yes, yes, Lucky. Thank you very much. Yeah, we had a we had a great discussion about pile dynamic testing and uh, I guess the good, the bad, and the ugly about it. So we're going to investigate different different things and different applications and why is the best thing in the world and why it could be the worst thing in the world. So that's <laughs> that's that's to come. Is it imaginary versus reality? We will find out. Thank you, Sebastian, for that. And uh, thanks to uh, Paul and Greg for joining us. Looking forward to how the first round is going to go. Excellent. Excellent. So I guess let's get it started, right? So, yeah. So as we mentioned before, we have Paul and and Greg today to... Oh, come on. We started like that. We were going to have a little intro before here. But anyway, we have Paul and and Greg, two very well-known uh, figures and references in the in the deep foundation industry. So, some you know, two good friends of DFI. Uh, I don't know, Paul and and Greg, if you guys want to mention a little bit about yourself and especially related to like PDA and what we're going to talk today. So, I guess let's go in order. Let's go civilize. So, Paul, if you want to start first. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, Paul Axtell, Dan Brown Associates. Uh, maybe 22 years out of uh, experience out of graduate school. The last 15 of which have been with DBA. Uh, my distinguished opponent, Greg, uh, a colleague of mine, someone I have a lot of respect for, uh, and more importantly, a guy that I call a friend. So I'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity to be here today and look forward to a fun discussion. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. When I heard I was rumbling against Paul, I busted out the uh, boxing gloves, and then I realized I got a button-down shirt on, and who brings boxing gloves to a rumble? So um, I know Paul's from the, from the big city of... Uh, Kansas City there, so I got my work cut out for me, but my name is uh, Greg Canavan. I um, live in Charleston, South Carolina with my wife and two kids, and uh, I've been practicing geotechnical engineering for about the last 25 years or so. Got my degree from Clemson University, go Tigers, and um, yeah, a lot of, uh, I guess, my career putting food on the table is uh, revolved around uh, dynamic testing, so um, I'll, uh, I, I don't drink the Kool-Aid per se, but I do believe in it and it's a it's a great tool for for our industry all right no excellent thank you very much both for that introduction so i guess before we engage into into battle let's just kind of talk a little bit what you know pda is and and the the revolution that has been so i guess greg if you want to just mention a little bit uh if you want to summarize just like the history right i mean I, i'll just give you my angle uh 
you know, when I started my career, and keep in mind that I started in Colombia, PDA was not available, and then it was the engineer's equation, right? It was basically correlations that based on refusal, you could try to correlate and see what is the capacity that that pile is having and maybe what is the stress. Equations used to be really, you know, the engineer's equation was very related to, to the pile that hammer that you were using and things like that. And then obviously PDA came into, you know, into, into the market and we start, you know, having the wave equation analysis and all that. So if you want to just mention a little bit of that and how that, let's say how PDA came into your life, right? And, and what it means. Right. Well, I guess there's the, the wave equation type stuff that was uh, around in, I guess, the middle of the, the 1900s. And the, uh, the PDA was kind of pioneered in Ohio uh, by Dr. Goebel um, with uh, Frank Rausch doing a lot of the CAPWAP, which is the subsequent analysis after the field work, and, uh, and Garland Likens, who um, established uh, GRL and kind of made a, a uh, a commercial version of, of the of the machine that that I use anyway, um, yeah, and 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 I think a lot of people focus on the capacity or bearing resistance, let's say, uh, use with the with the dynamic test method. But there's also a lot of other interesting things that you can get uh, from it as well, including you know driving stresses, hammer performance, mm -hmm. uh, and those kind of things. I like. I kind of liken it a little bit to in situ testing, say with CPT versus SPT, where maybe the SPT, you get a blow count every five feet, whereas the CPT, you can get a continuous profile and sure you can't put your hands on it, but as engineers, we don't necessarily need to put our hands on it. We're looking for how things uh, perform. So the, the feedback from the, from the PDA as you're installing a foundation is uh, you get a, basically a feedback every blow. Correct, correct. And and yeah, Paul, I don't know if you want to also mention a little bit. Uh, and before I, I pass to you, I have to mention, Greg, on something that you said. I, I did took a class on PDA and reliability of piles in, in Cleveland with Dr. Frank Rausch in, I don't know, like early 2000, mid 2000s. And it was beautiful. I mean, just understanding everything from him. And I, I think we, before we start into anything, we have to recognize the amazing job they did because they changed our industry, right? I mean, that these, these completely changed everything. But Paul, if you want to basically say something similar in terms of how do you got into PDA and you know what it means to you. Sure, I'll just uh, start with full disclosure. I, I'm not a PDA or I should, I think we should be using this, the term high strain dynamic testing. I'm not a high strain dynamic testing technician. Uh, I've never been the one to climb the leads and attach the gauges to the pile. Uh, I look at the results of high strain dynamic testing probably on a daily basis, if not weekly. When I first got into, uh, interested in it, uh, I guess would say it was in graduate school working on soil dynamic research with Ken Stokey. That certainly was not uh, high strain dynamic testing like we're talking about today, but the principles of soil, soil damping, uh, wave, mechanic wave mechanics, all the things that are <clears throat> germane to uh, dynamic pilot testing, the basics of the principles of it, uh, that's where I first learned it. <clears throat> Early out of uh, graduate school, I worked on a was fortunate enough to work on a very large project in which high strain dynamic testing uh, with restrikes and signal matching uh, was conducted at several sites uh, along with static load testing and and the the results uh, they didn't compare very well to be quite uh, honest with you and I, I think that had a lot to do with the with the system that was being implemented as well as the soil conditions and so. Uh, I, I will echo Greg, there's a lot of benefit to high strain dynamic testing with respect to monitoring the hammer energy, uh, the in situ evaluation of stress in general terms is also very useful I will say, oftentimes we hang our hat 
the stress that we're measuring uh, may not be the highest stress or local stress uh, that could be uh, occurring, but it's still a useful measurement. Uh, where I will start some conflict is I do believe that the ability for high strain dynamic testing to estimate, accurately estimate the static resistance of a pile uh, is oversold. Uh, it isn't always the case. There are some geologies and driving systems where it works great. There are lots of other locations uh, that I don't think it works so well. And uh, I feel like our industry doesn't broadcast those situations enough. And sometimes we may listen to salesmen, saleswomen uh, that may uh, give us the impression that it's the, it is the right answer all the time. And I, I just think that that's oversold. All right, man. I can I can feel already we're gonna have a really meaningful discussion. I, I feel my blood boiling already, Paul. Yes, I was trying to be civilized, but he's bringing us down. But no, that's, that's cool. I mean that that's the whole point today. I think is to talk about this example, and I think that's what is gonna bring a lot of value in our industry. So, all right. So let let's get started with the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, let's start with you, Greg. Uh, why don't you provide us an example where PDA and CapWap have made a positive technical difference? I mean, something that you can say, okay, this is the reason that, you know, that this is so awesome. Well, I, I go back, like I said, I, I think that high strain dynamic testing is not just about capacity, but it's also about hammer performance and things like that. And I, I go back to a project I worked on years ago, an interstate project where after 4,000 blows on a large diameter pipe pile, um, the driving was at refusal. It was about 20 blows an inch, 10 foot stroke. Um, the hammer was um, maybe a D36, so you know, 70, 80,000 foot pound hammer. Um, and it was transferring about 30 foot kips. So say let, it's um, a 40% energy transfer, something like that. So it was stroking pretty well, had uh, got some stress measurements were below the limits um, and, and it mobilized say 250 tons is what we were, we were measuring, which was below what they needed. Um, so we, we stopped for about an hour and decided to, to restrike the pile. And when we did after about an hour, the, uh, the blow count dropped to about 11 blows an inch from 20. Uh, the stroke height dropped from 10 to nine. Um, and everybody was concerned about relaxation and, and things like that if we had a loss of capacity. But actually, the PDA showed that we got a little bit more energy into the pile, about 50% versus 40. Um, and we were actually able to mobilize about 300 tons. So um, there was no relaxation. And we actually measured more resistance on, on the restrike. But it really, to me, drove home the point about how driving systems and things can change their efficiency if they get overheated times of the day these kind of things. And um, I'm, a, I'm a, a board member of the PDCA and, and, and their tagline is a driven pile is a tested pile. And somebody once told me, sometimes that can come back to bite you if people hang their hat on a blow count with such ferocity that you, have, you must get this. But that was really a time where the, the stroke got lower, the blow count got lower, people thought it was relaxing, but actually the hammer performed more efficiently and we, we mobilize more resistance. So I think that was a really good case across the board of some of the, the things high strain dynamic testing um, can help us with. Um, I guess as far as the bad, my personal here in my area, we drive a lot of concrete piles. And sometimes if you get these hairline tension cracks, that can really make 
the dynamic testing uh, difficult uh, with respect to capacity. The field values can be all over the place and the cap WAP gets pretty rigorous, uh, the signal matching that, that you have to do. So the, the bad is sometimes with, with cracked um, concrete piles, um, not, not cracked so much that you can't drive them more the hairline um, tension cracks. Um, and then of course, nowadays with the open-ended pipe piles and the plugging um, effects, the soil plugging effects and trying to measure that um, with, with dynamic testing is, uh, is difficult. Um, I guess the ugly is maybe, um, I mean, I don't know that I'm much to look at now, but you should see me sometimes after I've, uh, after I've had a hard day out in the field, but um, I, it's ugly from the standpoint of you can get yourself into some really crazy situations, but that's also, I think, something that's really neat about the high strain dynamic testing is where you can take this tool. Um, I mean, you can do it below water, down in coffer cells. If you can, if you can get a hammer on top of the pile, you can you can do this test. So you can you can really get yourself in some nasty, dirty, ugly looking places, but still get get some really really good information. No, I I agree, and I'm gonna be taking sides and changing that you know as we go. But yeah, if we're talking about the good, I obviously I also have great experiences through my career with the good. I one important thing that you said is not only capacity, but it's also stresses, right? And when I started. Uh, we typically only use PDA for friction piles and piles that were going into rock. It was always the thought of why do you need that? You're going to eventually go into rock and you get refusal. That's it. Uh, and then it was the reason of saying, yeah, but it's probably still useful to have PDA because then we know that we didn't overstress the pile and we get a capacity. And then, you know, there is plenty of examples that I have that we have used PDA, let's say for pile relaxation, right? And evaluate example, you know, things of pile relaxation that it definitely brings us like let's say that we get extra safety because even though we have pile relaxation we were still in a good range from where the pile needed to be so we could afford that uh, same thing if we talk about pile setup right i mean it's like i'm sure everyone in, in in their careers have had pile setup driving piles you know on friction piles on on saturated loose deposits of sand that when you start driving and you see that you have half of your resistance you get panic Right, and then after you wait a little bit and the pile setup, of course, you confirm that the capacity with the PDA is there. So definitely there is positives and I think we all recognize that, right? But I guess to try to spice it up, let's go, let's go Paul with you and, and let's kind of do things a little different. So why now you tell us one experience and obviously feel free to interrupt each other if you, if, if you feel that the other one is saying something that you don't agree. But, you know, Paul, if you want to, or, you know, kind of, Go sure. against something that he said, but if you don't have comments or if you want to say that and then the question, I guess my, my question would be, why don't you give us a, a good example where PDA or CAPWAP was the opposite? That was a really bad disappointment uh, and you kind of felt that the technology left you down. I will, thank you. First though, I'm gonna go with uh, real briefly with, the, with my good, bad and ugly. I will say my good is just like Greg said, the ability to monitor the hammer energy is uh, it's a tool that uh, it's under undersold. It's undervalued, I believe, or at least it's underproclaimed in the in the world of selling uh, dynamic testing. Like Greg, <clears throat> in a project in Western Montana, I've had that same. If it weren't for high strain dynamic testing, I would have uh, been stopping piles shorter than they should have been. It was just like you said, a uh, instance of the hammer heating up and, and losing energy, uh, and would have never known that by standing on the ground, counting blows, watching the stroke, watching the jump stick. Without uh, high strain dynamic testing, I would have never known 
that that, uh, that the right amount of energy was not being delivered as the hammer heated up. So that certainly is a good part of high strain dynamic testing. The bad, there are there are soil deposits, there are driving systems where the the estimated uh, resistance from high strain dynamic testing is not uh, it's not the right number. That's the bad part <clears throat> in my mind. Now, maybe the majority of locations, maybe that's not the case, but there are locations that are out there. There are geologies, there are hammers, there are piles, there are soils uh, where it doesn't give a good estimate. So that's the bad. Uh, and the ugly, I think, is, is, a, is another part that I think uh, goes under notice in our industry, and that is it is not a unique solution. There is scatter. It is operator dependent. It is interpretation dependent. Uh, and, and I think the worldwide, uh, th there's lots of scatter on, on who the right operator is, who the right technician is. Uh, it, you know, sooner or later, someone's got to pick some, some squiggly lines uh, and draw a conclusion. And there is scatter. Uh, and I think that's, that's the ugly part of the industry. Uh, and when you have maybe a, a less sophisticated owner or client, uh, they're looking for a number out of the box. Uh, and they may not appreciate the all the subtleties that go along with it. Uh, so I think, in my mind, that's the ugly. Um, so I guess I'll stop there and let Greg shoot back. Yeah, uh, Greg. Sure, I'll I'll jump in there. Um, like I said, I uh, I use the tool. I, the number that you get out of at the very end needs to be evaluated, uh, just like any other number. So I would say, first of all. And there's been some studies and some, some neat papers written about asking folks to, to take a boring log or CPT sounding and say, we are going to drive a, an H pile on this site. Use whatever method you want. It may be a method that somebody uses on a, you know, from a database on a concrete pile in Sands in Florida. And this site may be in the Netherlands but they're gonna use their formula that they're comfortable with, with no local knowledge. And they're gonna come up with their estimate of what the quote unquote resistance is. So once you look at that kind of data and see what's the scatter in the prediction, it's, it's, you know, it's off the charts. Then if you come back and say, do a uh, dynamic test and you give everybody that, that data and you do signal matching, yes, not everybody will get the same answer. Um, and there will be some scatter. Um, there's been a lot of studies and yeah, the scatter might be plus or minus 10%, maybe 20%, you know, some, something that high, but you know, probably on average, maybe plus or minus 10%. But the, the kicker to me is what are we comparing it to? And if we're comparing it to a static load test, which I'm sure y'all both have run static load tests, for some reason that's thought to be the answer. Which, it is the answer. Uh, <laughs> why is not? Why is not the answer? Because I agree with Paul. The static test is the answer. I put the pile, I put the load, and I measure, right? That's it. Why that's not? The, that's the answer. <laughs> so when Paul, I think when Paul says the bad is, the answer from the dynamic testing is wrong. I think what the dynamic testing really shows is the good, bad, or ugly of the soils that we're in. With a static load tests, you get one point at one depth at one point in time, essentially. Um, and that's what you're comparing, say, the dynamic testing to. 
you have to compare apples to apples. And if somebody runs a dynamic test in a shale and says, this is your resistance, it's not necessarily that the dynamic testing is wrong. It's just that the soil may relax and they're providing you a number in a geology that at that time, that may be the resistance, but that's not the long-term resistance. So I'm not sure if that's where you're going, Paul, but I feel like that's not necessarily di the dynamic testing issue. It's just the fact that the, the resistance changes with time and at the time it's being reported, it's maybe correct, but that's not necessarily the long-term resistance. Before Paul, before you answer, I, I will just say, let's try to establish, just to clarify. So I guess, Greg, do you agree at a, a, a static test? I know limited to the place that is done and it's one point, one specific location, just within the inch or whatever that we're talking. If you do a test there and you do a static load, that is the answer. No. Uh, you, you don't agree on that. But no, why our, not? If I load it and I see capacity. Paul, Paul, Paul our, our esteemed colleague, Tim Siegel, has a beautiful paper that I steal a figure from all the time. It's a, a static load test on a CFA pile. And the, the test is taking to failure using the Davison criteria. Mm -hmm. it, it's also plots out the failure criteria that the IBC references, say De Beers, or there's a couple that the IBC references. Okay. So from one plot, you have three different ultimate resistances from that test. Okay. And not only, not only do you have three different ultimate resistances, the values are something like 500 kips for one and 250 kips for the other. So the same exact test results in an ultimate resistance that's two times uh, the other result. But I, I, I go back to- It's only half the battle. What the ultimate grade. necessarily is. If you go back and you look at say uh, 200 kips on that curve, the pile top may have only moved a third of an inch, a quarter of an inch. So the ultimate resistance doesn't necessarily affect the performance of that foundation closer at the des actual design load. So, so. Paul, be before you unleash all the ammunition that you have, just to be absolutely clear. So I guess, Greg, what you are saying is, my point was one test, one static in a location is representative. And what you're saying is the interpretation of that, it's subjective because there is different methods, right? And obviously, depending what you are calling, it's not a perfect curve that goes this and that, right? And depending where you call it, even your ultimate is subjective to, to change. And you are kind of elaborating also on the defense of the squiggly line that you say, well, in PDA, you may criticize that, but it's not that different on your interpretation of static. Just to summarize. So now, Paul, you can take it from there and relieve the pressure. So, Greg, I hear what you're saying, but I think that that's not the, that's a fundamental flaw in the interpretation that is specified to us by our codes. The load settlement behavior of the static load test is the answer. Whether we apply it incorrectly due to code requirements or, or maybe even our own ignorance, whether we apply it incorrectly in design is a separate issue than having the real data. Under a static load, there's a deformation of the pile. That load settlement curve is the answer. If we choose to screw it up by our interpretation and application, the, that's a different animal. But the answer is unique. Uh, the application is not unique. I think that's the difference with high strain dynamic testing. 
high strain dynamic testing. I, I mean, and I think if you dig into the literature, you'll it's published right there. There, the effect of dynamics on soil shear strength it's profound, and to be honest, not very well understood. And so, any way we slice it, high strain dynamic testing it's in the title. It's dynamic, and so there are effects, pretty major effects on the shear strength of soil uh, that in some deposits don't lend themselves very well to high strain dynamic testing and measurement. It's not imaginary. We're measuring something. It's just we don't know what we're measuring. Greg, you want to counteract that? Sure. I think that's that's the the magic, so to speak, of the high strain dynamic testing, right? We know that the bridge or the building can only rely on the static resistance what you're measuring with the high strain dynamic testing is both the dynamic and the static resistance. Um, and so you have to separate out the two. That's, that's like I said, that's, that's the magic of it. Um, that's the voodoo of it. Well, and, and what I go back to sometimes is, is even, you know, you have the signal matching, which, um, you know, sort of refines some of your field values, but, you know, it's like anything garbage in, garbage out. You can also use some of the more, uh, you know, um, basic case method type things. And from that response of the pile during the test, your CAPWAP shouldn't vary too much from, from those methods. Um, but I, I think over the years, these questions that you're bringing up, Paul, have been studied and, and vetted and and analyzed, and I think it, like anything with geotechnical engineering, local knowledge is is the key. And if you know that time and time again, you have some sort of soils that just don't fit this model where the dynamic testing is 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 having a hard time. Um, but I still would I still would wonder how the the static load and the dynamic load re results vary, how how much they vary, and why these soils that, that you're talking about are so unique that, that the dynamic testing just can't, can't measure it correctly. Sure, so the, the magnitude of difference is about 30%. So in all cases, I've seen the high strain dynamic test with, with signal matching on restrike uh, in the same time frame of the static load test. So let's take the, let's take the time, the setup out of the, out of the picture. Uh -huh. uh, we're looking at about a 30% underestimate and that's not just at one site, that's at about a half dozen sites, most of them in the Midwest, um, but from Minnesota all the way down to uh, Texas, really. Um, most of them in recent alluvial deposits, probably with a high degree of sensitivity of the soil. So, you know, if you think of sensitive soils and, uh, uh, and the effect of uh, the dynamic loading on shear strength, I think, I think we could all wrap our minds around that those would be prone to deterioration uh, at a rate that we don't totally understand to the point where uh, if we're doing a restrike, if we don't capture it on the first one, two, three blows, uh, we've changed We've changed the conditions. And so, um, you know, restrikes, re they can be useful. Heck, I use them all the time to, to get myself out of a bind, but the reality of it is that's not necessarily the right answer either. But I, will, I was, uh, <clears throat> I wrote down a, a note, Greg, when you said local knowledge is key, and I totally agree with that. And I will also admit that there are geologies in experiences where high strain dynamic testing is a perfectly valid method to estimate static resistance. Um, but I ask, I gotta ask you the question, when you say local key is knowledge and we know we're getting the right answer, what is that calibrated to? And I'm, 
I think the answer is a static load test. Yeah, I mean, I'll 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 give you some of these. Like I said, I'll 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 hear you out. I'll 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 swing and duck and hear you out. Um, we want the right answer, but for some reason, I, I still go back to the fact of when I do a, a project and I provide somebody a shallow foundation option, I tell them if you design your foundation for this bearing pressure, you will have less than one inch of settlement. For some reason, when we get into deep foundations, and this is not necessarily only dynamic testing, we're so focused on capacity, capacity, capacity. Um, and I hear you, we want to try to get the, the, the same, we want the right answer, really, whether it's the same wrong answer, that doesn't do us any good. We want the right answer. Um, but I, I think that, that sometimes, even if the answer is, is variable, we still have to go back to the performance of that of that foundation. And if we're, again, I don't know your, the details of where we're off by 30% potentially, and you know that the cap wap, uh, the signal matching output, you know, you do have a load displacement curve that's, that's presented there, but basically everybody just looks at the dynamic test results as the ultimate resistance, which again, could be similar to what, what, we're, what I was talking about earlier, where that's the interpretation of the dynamic testing is that ultimate, very, very, very end of the road resistance. Um, so if you're comparing the static load test to say the, um, the, the load test curve on the CAPWAP, you know, are the, are the performance, the load versus displacement um, accurate with each other um, within the area that the load is actually on? And maybe we're arguing more about what's happening at the tail end of the, of the result. So, so totally agree that maybe we're, the industry is too focused on capacity. Um, but again, I, I mean, as you have you alluded to there, it's the load deformation curve. Uh, that's what the structure feels, right? So uh, probably deformation-based or performance-based uh, analysis and design is probably the, the way of the future here. I don't disagree with you there. But when you say ultimate resistance, you know, you, you, you made the statement that uh, that end users look at the ultimate resistance, which is what what people think the high strain dynamic test provides. I guess I would say uh, the, the very well known fact that the high strain dynamic testing underestimates resistance when a pile is at refusal. I mean, by definition, it has to underestimate it because we're not mobilizing. So instead of saying uh, at least to me, when I hear that the end, end user calls it the ultimate resistance, I think it's important to say that's the end user should recognize that's the mobilized resistance, uh, which for a pilot refusal by definition is quite a bit less than the ultimate or nominal resistance. I think there's a there's there's a difference there. And I, 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 let's start there. Can we all agree that at refusal high strain dynamic testing is an underestimate? Yeah, but I, I, I yes. But I think it, the same can be said for the static load test, where you see somebody has wow. designed it on a piece of paper, say, to a factor of safety of two, and they load a foundation to 300 kips, and it's still on the elastic portion of the curve. Well, we know from that static load test, you, we have not reached the ultimate resistance either because we have not mobilized the strength. We have not moved it enough. So I'm not sure that that shortcoming of a pile refusal is a, is a shortcoming of the dynamic test. It's just the fact that a static load test has that same issue of not moving the element enough to mobilize its full strength. 
Um, and yeah, people have to present the result just as I would present that with a static load test case of we didn't reach geotechnical failure. We, we, we did a proof test, essentially. There's more there. How much is there? You can draw hyperbolic curves, et cetera, try to figure that out. But um, yeah, the, I, I, I agree. It's not the ultimate resistance, but I don't know that that's a shortcoming of the dynamic testing. I think it's just a shortcoming of the, the driving system cannot move the pile, just like a, a hydraulic jack might not be able to do the same. Fair enough. Yeah. That Wow, that was excellent. I keep swinging between the two of you because each one say a very good argument, convince me completely, and then the other one counteract and it's like, yeah, that convinced me better. So <laughs> it just keeps going back and forth. Lucky, you wanna come back? Yes, I've been here. What um... do you think about this so far? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to give it to both of them. You know, when we started, I really loved how they both went back to the roots and started talking about how PDA, you know, evolved. When did they start talking about PDA in the industry and everything else and how they were introduced to PDA as well. Um, and uh, for a few minutes, I was a little, you know, worried because they were very quiet and they were very, you know, well-behaving until, until... <laughs> Paul made a comment and, uh, you know, Greg, you could see his face, you know, going red a little bit. <laughs> Blood was boiling there a little bit. So that was really cool. Thanks for doing that, Paul. We knew you would do this. You wouldn't, you definitely would not be disappointing to us. Um, and at the same time, I think I really like how they both gave in the good and bad um, you know, examples of the projects, which definitely makes sense from the perspective of, you know, as Greg said, his realm is testing, you know, uh, providing guidance and providing, advocating for PDA. And Paul says like his realm is just reviewing. He never goes out to test and things like that. And, you know, you could see both their perspectives back and forth. And, uh, you know, Paul, Paul said, um, as a client, you always look for a number out of the box, which is very true. You know, it can be for this testing or it can be for anything else. Client just wants one simple answer, you know, um, and that is something that would help them. So I really enjoy how they are bringing out good, bad and ugly of uh, PDA and also about themselves a little bit. <laughs> um, enjoying uh, listening to that. So you can see uh, from their conversation after the uh, first round what we have a glimpse of in the other two rounds. And I'm looking forward to watching that good job both of you excellent excellent yeah so all right so i guess are we ready for round two you guys feel relaxed already and go back What's excellent. Next? you're going to tell me paul likes to use the en formula to design piles right yeah he's going back to that there is nothing better than that right <laughs> excellent so let's go to round two and let me start with round two with something that Paul said, and this obviously goes for you, Greg, which Paul said the problem with PDA is start from the name itself, like the dynamic testing, right? Because, and I'll be very neutral here, but obviously when we were all in school, we learned, and especially if we spend a lot of time in the lab, we realized very quickly that soil reacts differently if it's a slow rate loading or if it's high rate, right? I mean, if if like, you know, I grew up in Colombia and then obviously clay is everywhere in Bogota. So I spent a lot of time doing unconfined compressions of clay. And it's, I mean, obviously depending the rate that you that you fail the specimen, you're gonna have a different resistance. 
and the isotac behavior that we know apply to different materials. So uh, do you have an answer to that accusation that he did that you never really have the chance to answer before? Well, anybody who knows me, especially the contractors, if they'll call me with a question, I'll always answer it, it depends. And that's really the beauty about soil. When even somebody says, what's the strength of a soil? It depends. Are you pulling it? Are you pushing it? How long is it sitting there? Has it got some aging effects? You know, there, it's just, you know, clay is not a clay is not a clay. And, you know, things change with time without us even monkeying around and, and sticking foundations into it. So even if a soil has been sitting there for millions of years, the, the instance we, 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 we stick something in the ground, we've just changed that state of stress now. And it's a uh, its new state of stress is, is brand new compared to the, the millennia that it's, that it's been sitting there. But I think a lot of those, those issues are things that people have brought up since, since its infancy. I mean, the physics behind the dynamic testing is simple Newton force equals mass times acceleration, all these types mm -hmm. of things that have been around for a long, long time. And it just took us you know, into to the 1900s to to get instrumentation that was able to measure something that, let's face it, is a pretty violent act uh, to such a, a precise value to even even attempt to to, to make some of these um, these measurements. So yeah, I think I think all of those issues that you're bringing up are true. And anybody who who says you know the the strength of a soil is a, is a single number needs to. Uh, check where they uh, sent their college tuition, I think. <laughs> um, but I think just history and the doubt and, and you know, the, the, the suspicions or, or questions that should be asked, um, I think for the most part have, have been vetted and, um, and, you know, it's still evolving and improving. And I think where, like I said, with open-ended pipes and some things like that, um, yeah, you got to be you got to be careful and say you know this method might it, it just might not give us the the answer we're, that you know we think we should be getting um, from from the test. So, yeah, I think I think the dynamic part of it is in the name. It's not a hidden fact, and and the the basics of the dynamic test is to separate out those dynamic effects from the static effects um, or the total effects, I should say and come up with that static resistance, which, you know, in general, I think it does a, does a, does a, a good job at. Yeah, so I, I think that's, I think that's the point of contention. I think, I think in some places, in some systems, it does do a fine job. There are other less well-known uh, instances, geologies, where it doesn't do such a great job. And, and I guess the, the issue, even though these, the, all these, uh, these issues have been brought up in the past, they're not well publicized. Um, they're not. Uh, they're not broadcast. They're not published, and and that's a shame in our industry. And I I think uh, I think it's to the point where where we call these test piles. That's not. I don't. You know. I don't know that that's a fair statement to tell an owner that we're 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 uh, giving them a test pile when there's so much uncertainty with respect to the dynamic shear strength, uh, the cyclic loading effects, damping. You know. Anything. Anytime we got to put something on uh, semi log paper. Or semi-log graph, we know we know we don't know it very well, so that's damping to a T. Um, and so I think these uh, limitations, which every test has limitations, uh, everything we do has limitations. Those limitations need to be known. I think as an industry, we need to do a better job of educating the owners and the end users on what the limitations are, 
and and I think if, if high strain dynamic testing has become a commodity with where the only barrier to entry into the industry is to have the money to buy the equipment, um, I, I think sometimes we lose uh, we lose that uh, appreciation for the limitations, and all we're looking to do is find the next high strain dynamic testing job. All right, Greg, you have anything to add? Well, I guess I will say this from just from my experience that high strain dynamic testing, like any deep foundation uh, endeavor, can be pretty humbling. Um, I feel that, you know, from my involvement in the testing, you go out on that site and you have a target on your back, you know, especially if you're on, say, some design build contractor and you told the contractor, drive it to this depth and thou shalt get this sort of resistance. And you get out there and you run the test and you don't get it. And they say, now what? Now what do we do? And um, when you realize the time and money that is now, you know, that you're standing in between because you didn't get it right, um, it, it's very humbling. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of things that, uh, you know, let's, let's go back to the shallow foundations. Not a lot of people are doing, you know, low displacement tests on shallow foundations and, okay, maybe ignorance is bliss, or maybe we figure it's conservative enough, but to, to be out there and actually get that number, um, and hopefully it's very close to what you predicted, um, can be, can be quite humbling at times. I mean, I'm, I'm a person too, that if I design something for a safety factor of two and we measure a three, you know, the contractor may say, great, let's move on. Let's, let's go. We're, this is what we're doing. I think, well, you're leaving a lot of money on the table and, uh, you know, however much you could save in pile lengths, um, you know, and thinking back of how much we argued about my geotechnical fee, um, it's, it's a little disheartening, but um, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's, it can be very humbling to, to say here, here's a number that I'm measuring with this device. Um, it's not the number I thought it was going to be. And as maybe as Paul's alluding to, it's not the number that it would be under a, a static load as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting going into a little bit of, of what you mentioned before, Paul. Uh, obviously, when we get into the PDA, there is there is things that are different than the rest of our geotech practice, right? I mean, and you, you kind of mentioned about damping, right? And quake, I guess. Uh, so let, let's talk about these variables for a second, because I don't think anyone that goes through a typical geotech program or something like that learn these variables, right? And then when we start learning the technology, we are referred to a table, right? And like, well, this is a table, depending on the soil, you pick this, but at some point they look kind of like a black magic thing, right? It's something that is not, it's not a property of the soil that you learn fundamentally or, or anything like that. So I guess, Paul, if you want to go back to kind of that idea that you were elaborating before and, and, and sure. criticize that if you want. Well, I'll focus on Quake. I mean, I think that's the biggest player. And before I get on my tirade here, I will acknowledge, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in GRL Weep. I use the wave equation program all the time on a daily basis. Uh, I find it has great use for the things that, uh, that we do in our practice. Uh, so I'm a big believer in Weep and I think it's an important tool in the toolbox. Yes. When we talk about Quake, uh, what are we talking about? Something I never learned in school, not even graduate school. So it's something I had to kind of learn on the fly. Uh, I think probably most people are in that same boat unless they were focused on high strain dynamic testing is part of their research and graduate school or something. But, uh, so when we talk about quake, it's uh, resistance divided by the stiffness of the, of the soil or rock. 
Uh, and really the, the driver is the denominator there, the soil stiffness. So if we're driving a pile to hard rock and the, the table that you alluded to, Sebastian, is uh, use 0 0.04. Um, well, when, I, when, when our company, I, I hope our engineers are listening to this, when we do drivability, it's not just one run. We, we may run 50, you know, computer time is cheap. Uh, we may run 50 simulations for one, one hammer and one pile by changing, doing a sensitivity study of all the inputs. And what we al almost always find is the biggest player is quake, toe quake. Uh, if you get the toe quake wrong, uh, resistances, driving stresses are vastly different than what are measured. Uh, and so by just picking a, a value out of the table and plugging it in and saying that's the value, I think it's very short-sighted. I think it's incumbent upon the engineer to, uh, to do a sensitivity analysis and figure out what are the players, what parameters play the most role. Uh, and, and what we find is, is a lot of times, at least for piles on rock, the toe quake is, is giant, right? I mean, we'll either say we're going to overstress the pile or we're going to we're going to show a, a resistance that's through the roof. Um, but if that quake is wrong, things are quite, quite a bit different in the field. So it, it is something you have to learn. I had to learn on the fly. And so maybe Greg, I'll turn it over to you to when you came out of school, were you uh, a master of quake and all the other inputs that go into this? He learned it in high school. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did, I did learn Newton's laws in high school, but yeah, the quake part is a little bit different. And, the, the term is, 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 it's more, yeah, the, the, the displacement, you have to move something to go sort of from the elastic to the plastic standpoint. So that's sort of the, that, that quake value is in, is in a, inches or, or millimeters. Um, and so, yeah, you can have these high quake soils where the pile will move a lot, um, but you won't get any permanent, uh, movement of the pile. It's, it's rebounding a lot. So you can get a, a relatively high driving resistance that doesn't necessarily corroborate a high soil strength. But I think we're 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 moving over into the wave equation and driving formula now versus maybe the dynamic testing. But um the um yeah the WEEP program or is I don't know what you can buy the thing for 1500 bucks or something like that. But I was half joking before, but, you know, I still see people using the engineering news formula, which, you know, I think was first proposed in, you know, 1880 around the same time the telephone was invented. And we can see what the telephone looks like nowadays compared to, but that formula still hasn't changed. And, and there's other driving formulas that are out there. Um, I guess when the more variables you put in, the, the, the more correct you think you are and, now that you have to put it in a spreadsheet, it must be must be more better because I, I I need an Excel spreadsheet to do this to do this now. But I guess I agree with Paul that you know the wave equation analysis at least it attempts to to take into consideration a lot of these variables. I mean you can do the math I guess, but if you did the EN formula for a you know a hundred foot pipe pile that's end bearing, or a fifty foot open ended pipe pile that's skin friction or a, you know, a 20 foot concrete pile, if you use the same hammer, you run that calculation and you're gonna get the exact same answer, which you know, my, my, my fifth grader could tell you that just doesn't make sense. So the, the tool is very powerful, um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the way it should be used is as Paul mentioned, to use it for sensitivity analyses and hopefully you can get within the realm of it could be this or it could be that, and is there a hammer that 
you can use maybe out there that will satisfy the conditions, whether it's a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right of, of what you have in your model. But I think what Paul's really getting at is if you are trying to eliminate load testing and just use the wave equation, say, if you drive it to this blow count, this is your resistance, period. Well, I guess maybe Sebastian, maybe maybe the terminology in the question, correct me if I'm wrong, but when, when you asked about Quake, in my mind, Quake is an output of the dynamic testing, uh, at least per that user's interpretation. It is a direct input into drivability analysis with WEEP, uh, but really I think uh -huh. Maybe, maybe, maybe the right term that we should be talking about now, as it relates to high stream dynamic testing, is the set, right? Because it's yes. the amount of yeah, set. Right. Yeah, it's right. The, it's the displacement. I'll say at the toe, uh, where we did we mobilize, did we displace the the element, the foundation enough to mobilize what we would call the nominal or ultimate resistance. At refusal, of course, of course, the answer to that question is no. Uh, we we don't. Uh, we can't. All we're measuring at refusal is the energy of the hammer. Uh, maybe some other things with some some fancy signal matching if it's correct and the residual stress analysis is done properly. Um, but, the, you know, I think what we should be talking about is set. Uh, a pile that's driven that has, in, in my mind, my experience, I feel like the high strain dynamic sweet spot is when we're in about that seven to 10 blows an inch, maybe seven to, seven to nine blows an inch. Uh, I think that's where we can get realistic values out of our high strain dynamic testing as they relate to static estimates. Uh, where we have oversized hammers or, or big hammers, which are good for the contractor for production, where we're going in at two, three, four blows an inch. I don't believe that we're getting real. I don't, I don't believe that we can produce realistic estimates of static resistance because of the dynamic effects. I don't think we capture them very well. On the other side, if we're at refusal, we don't have enough set to mobilize the full base or toe resistance in my, in my judgment. So um, I think that is a limitation of dynamic testing. I think it's a well-known limitation. Greg, you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think there are some limitations with that. And I would still go back, I guess, if we're kind of batting around the gold standard of a static load test that, you know, too many times I see just a top-down static load test, say. Um, uh, no instrumentation uh, to measure unit side shear. No telltales. No, you don't know if the bottom is moving or not. You know what the top is doing, but what 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 the bottom is doing. So, um, you know, I know Paul keeps harping on the uh, that the true answer is the static load test. I know this. I know this. <laughs> yeah, which, which I would I would I I do appreciate the fact that if Paul's looking at the curves in their entirety from the zero zero, <laughs> and even considering you know residual stresses and. And things like that, and and that's the response of of a pile or a foundation under a load. Um, I think that's that's the biggest thing is 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 the performance um, and whether the toe is mobilizing it or not. The let's face it, the load is is at the top of the of the element. The shears, the moments, other things as well. Um, and and we're just we're we're trying to get an idea of are we meeting some sort of deflection criteria under a certain load that we are going to use going forward. So um, I think there's that there's just that shortcoming that could be said for, you know, static or dynamic test. I, I guess I oh. tend to disagree on that, Greg. I mean, if the static test, assuming we have an adequate reaction system set up, uh, you know, maybe we're limited by the jack, but we can just push harder. 
on a dynamic test, we're limited by the hammer. Uh, and it, it make me, you know, I don't think any of us would see the economy in mobilizing a larger hammer, larger leads, larger crane, just to, just to hit a pile harder so that we can try and mobilize more tow resistance. Um, it just doesn't seem that practical to me. Well, I, know I think mobilizing a, a bigger hammer is, 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 is probably cheaper than getting a bigger reaction system out there. Uh, not if the bigger reaction system were already built and installed, right? I mean, you wouldn't, we wouldn't install a second reaction frame. We just size the first one to, to, to have enough. That's the key. <laughs> sure. I think, I think too many times the, the expense of a static load test is put forth. And like I said, for a couple pennies on the dollar to put some more instrumentation and make sure that you're hopefully running it to geotechnical failure. Or if you're, if you're not because you're on rock or something, then the you know most of the codes are saying it's it's a function of your material strength, right? You, your maximum load can only be a percentage of your of your steel strength. Yeah, um, like the ninety percent. Which, I guess that that's something that we've run across, both with say uh, driving formula or wave equation. I don't want to hijack this, but um, you know. I think some of the codes will 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 apply different resistance factors or safety factors to uh, your your method of testing, right? Usually, the static load test being the quote unquote gold standard. You have you have the best number, the 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 lowest safety factor, highest resistance value, right? From from that standpoint, uh, the dynamic testing might be next, and then the the driving formula or wave equation, and then maybe the driving formula next. And it's it's quite interesting that. If you look at some of the codes, um, I don't have a calculator to do the math and all this here, and I don't think anybody really cares to go through it, but- you know, I do, it, I do have my calculator <laughs> if you need it. Well, you, <laughs> always, always calculator if I have. Okay. <laughs> um, if, if, you know, the code may allow that you can design, you, you can put a maximum load on a pile that's say 50% of the yield strength of the steel, right? So say at HP 12 by 53, that's 25 KSF. Um, times, uh, what is it, 15.5 square inches, right? So maybe, I forget, maybe it's like 300 kips or something like that. Mm -hmm. 387 then, and a half, Greg. Yeah. Yes. But then if you if you use, say, a, a wave equation, um, your resistance factor is is usually somewhere on the order of, say, maybe 0.4 or something like that. So the, the ultimate resistance then that you have to drive the pile to is actually a higher stress just by dumb math <laughs> Then, um, you know, then, then the strength of, of the steel itself, if that makes sense. So sometimes you're, you're doing the dynamic test just to use a different resistance factor, not because you're trying to mobilize and show that the, the, the pile can, uh, the soil can hold more load. You're just trying to reduce your ultimate resistance target value um, to something that's less than the yield strength of, of the steel. I don't know if that makes sense without writing it down, but it's a it, it's a it's a thing. Sometimes we do PDA not not to necessarily confirm the 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 resistance per se, but just that the resistance target has to be lower so that when you drive the pile, you're not overstressing it. I think that's the case of the tail wagging the dog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have twenty, I know Paul, you're a big drilled shaft guy, and I, and I forget. I forget who said it, but I remember one time listening to a presentation. It was about load testing and how much how much uh, load testing, you know, the cost up front may be, 
looks like a large value, but in the end can be a pennies on the dollar and, and save you a lot of money. But you know, with drilled shafts, you're 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 cutting out you know ten thousand psi rock to drop in four thousand psi concrete. So yeah, sometimes things don't quite add up. We're we're going there, right? We're going to the, that. Yeah. Paul. This was interesting. This yes. Really interesting. It um, is. You know, because I was happy when they started with momentum point of contention a little bit, and then I could see how, uh, uh, you know, they agree and disagree on certain things, which actually makes a lot of sense, you know, makes a lot of sense from uh, how Paul is looking at and Greg is looking at. And and I think it's a good point that you know Paul made with, with respect to software systems, right? Different softwares and how much understanding can we have and how the understanding changes over a period of time uh, as being in the industry and as being you know, um, publicizing what we can do, what we can't do. So that was really good point from Paul. And, and I, you know, I think uh, he also did say about uh, not well publicized, right? Um, I think as, as you remember, the first series was uh, of the uh, podcast was interview with the survivor. Um, the reason why we did that was like, you know, people don't like to talk about failures, exactly like what we are talking about, like what went wrong, we never want to talk about, right? We always want to talk about everything that went well. So um, I think it was good that those points were brought out. Um, and at the same time, you know, I see a lot of initiatives coming out of this conversation. You know, I think everyone uh, who who are very close to uh, PDA testing and also drill shaft and you know, um, the foundations that we talk about, I think uh, uh, there will be a few good initiatives that will come out and uh, who knows, maybe uh, for the next year's uh, project fund, Paul will be applying for one and Greg will be applying for one or they both will be working together. Yeah, I don't know right? what Paul's doing this weekend, but he needs to start writing this paper on these contradictory results I keep I keep hearing so much about. I'm very interested in that. I know. And, I, and lucky, yeah. I, would, I would argue somewhat. I said, I always think when I go to the conferences, I said, boy, if my wife were here listening to this, she'd think everything has fallen down because uh, it's like the news <laughs> The you know, uh, it's another, another great project. Nobody wants to hear about that. They want to hear about, you know, these things that kind of go wrong. So, um, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, you know, maybe Paul will be able to enlighten us with a, some, some great case history showing the, uh, the dynamic yeah. test is failing. Yeah, you know, uh, Sebastian, uh, Paul, I think I have an idea for one of the conferences in the future. Maybe we should have a session which is only about failures. <laughs> you know, no talking uh, about. I don't know how much people would want to share. Yeah, the, the liability thing and the image. Yeah, but, yeah. No, but, but, but think about think about it, Sebastian. The interview with the survivor, we had the same uh, issue, right, before yep. starting this uh, yeah. series. But there were people who came out and said what they had to say about the projects, and we learned a lot from it. So um, I see this going uh, very well um, after everyone listening to this, uh, <laughs> you know, when it is, uh, when it comes out and, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what is the conclusion of these two and how, where we will stand, uh, with respect to Paul and Greg, and I'm hoping to have, um, the famous Paul's laugh before we end. Let's see. So good luck. Don't disappoint me. Uh, they, they will not. <laughs> well, I think we gotta, we, we have to be careful about, uh, uh, I, I'm not the projects that I'm referring to where the high string dynamic testing underestimated the static resistance. The projects, there were no failures. 
it was the, the only failure was if we would have relied solely on high strain dynamic testing, we would have put an unnecessarily amount more of steel into the ground. That's so that's not a failure. The project yeah. would not fail. It would be an economical question for sure. But uh, uh, things aren't falling down because of this. Uh, we're just we're not as optimal as we could be in some I, cases. That, that, that's a great point, Paul, because I think uh, I mean, of course, Greg was saying it as a joke. Right. And when say, like, show me the cases where he thinks are failing, because yeah, I mean, I think we recognize that, you know, we, we treat this with a lot of respect. Obviously, we all admire, you know, and, and, and deeply respect what GRL has done on PDI. I mean, it has absolutely revolutionized our industry. Uh, we're having these discussions uh, for fun, right? And, and I mean, obviously, we're super nerds, and it's nice to find other people that are equally nerd that want to have this. I, I don't know, man. I don't think this conversation is easy to have with many group of friends. You know, I mean, it, it's very centered. So it's awesome to have, like, you know, two two reference in the industry like you guys going in in this detail but yeah we all we all respect and recognize the the amazing job GRL and PDI have done and and we are just discussing this for fun because there are things that we see but it's extremely important for anyone listening to understand that yes as you pointed out Paul there is this is not failures right I mean we're not talking failures we're just talking discrepancies that are still covered under the design and they are still covered by the factors of safety and things that we use so even though it not be an exact match it's far from really being at risk you know or or, or compromising the safety of the structures that we construct these days correct yeah. And I think, you know, Sebastian, uh, Paul just uh, um, hit the nail on the head. Like, I know, of course, this is not going to fail the uh, structure for any reason, but I think at the same time, you know, all the um, examples they were talking about, Paul and Greg both, I think it would be nice to come out and talk about these examples where things did not go as they expected and how mm -hmm. that was rectified. You know, what are the things to watch out for on projects? And as Paul was saying, everything boils down to money. Right, Greg, everything boils down to money to the person we are working for. And if we can show that what makes the small tweaks that we have to do in small understandings. And, and of course, there is a lot of research that is left on the road, right? That we have to get to from 1900, as you said, Greg, we have come a long way and there is a long way to go too. So um, technology is changing, technology is growing. And so I, I see a lot coming out of this conversation. Thank you to both of you. Yeah, I think I think the dynamic testing is hopefully sh showing an economic advantage, oh, but not having a a detrimental effect on on performance. Obviously, mm -hmm. so I I would tend to agree that if 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 most of the time the dynamic test is more conservative, maybe than what the static load test might show. Um, hopefully it's, it's rarely the other way around, but if it is, then, um, with the safety factors and resistance factors, um, we, we should still not have a performance issue. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we're ready for round three, correct? Yes. We're ready for round three. Excellent. All right. So we're entering now the conclusion, uh, and we're moving into, I guess, let's try to find a realistic consensus. As I said at the, you know. I guess at the intermission, uh, there is nothing but respect, you know, absolute admiration, absolute respect to GRL and PDI. They have revolutionized the industry. They have introduced a tool that that has, have changed significantly the way that we do things. And, and it's absolutely safe. And we're just talking about these discrepancies. But yeah, I mean, just to put it out there that we, we have complete respect to what they do and we have complete admiration and, and support. And this is not intended to be disrespectful to anything. And we're just exploring 
very nerdy conversations among experts just to to you know to discuss this because it's fun. That's the only reason we're doing it. So moving into the consensus part, I guess. Um, well, let, let's just start talking about those cases that we said it worked well, but it may not work well. And let's just try to to start putting. So I guess, Paul, if you want to start, you know, <clears throat> talking about in your experience, let's say are, are meaningful results on, and you kind of touch a little bit, but let's just do it kind of as a group. Uh, as these meaningful results of PDA on hard rock, uh, you know, what about also hard clay, glacial tilts, very dense sand? I mean, what are the problematic situations that you think this will be a disaster and what are the situations that you think it could be something good? Okay, so, I mean, I think anytime a pile is at refusal, we are going to underestimate the nominal resistance with high strain dynamic testing, by definition, a well-known limitation. Um, I think conditions where that aren't very favorable for dynamic testing or the, uh, for uh, getting a static resist, a reasonable static resistance out of dynamic testing are soils that are highly sensitive, uh, saturated soils that are uh, of young geologic age. Uh, I've seen issues with those. Um, silts are always a problem in my judgment. Like Greg said at the very beginning, a clay is not a clay is not a clay. There are some clays that don't behave well under dynamic loading. Cyclic loading, a whole nother issue. Um, and so I, I think it, it, for the for high strain dynamic testing to be a uh, a reasonable estimate of static resistance, it has to be calibrated locally to static load tests. And I think Greg operates mostly in regions where that has been done. And I think he's probably developed in his practice a great reliance, uh, great reliability for what he gets out of his uh, uh, measurement. Uh, and he probably some time ago related that to uh, static load test results, I imagine. Uh, when those when those conditions exist, it can be a very useful tool. It is a useful tool, um, but there are situations that need to be um, brought forth in the industry where it does not provide the most reasonable estimate of static resistance. I think concrete piles, stiff piles and sand, um, displacement piles like concrete piles in, in a sand or even a unsaturated uh, soil. I, I believe if you're in the sweet spot with the driving system, uh, high strain dynamic testing can provide a very reasonable estimate, but there are lots of other locations where that's not the case. So, Greg, I'll let you shoot at me. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree that the the displacement during the test is 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 a big part of the dynamic test method. Um, there's no getting around that. Um, that test is run as you're impacting a pile, dropping a weight on, you know, a cast in place pile, whatever it is, but you have to move the pile a reasonable amount to stretch the soil, strain the soil to hopefully measure its maximum strength. Um, as you know, Paul, with the with the drilled shafts too, we get into these, you know, situations and 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 you know, maybe you have to move the the side a, a tenth of an inch, a quarter inch max to mobilize the, the maximum skin friction, but you have to move the, the toe, you know, a lot more to, to get the, the ultimate resistance at the bottom. And you may never get the ultimate resistance. In a sand, you just keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, and your resistance just keeps getting larger and larger and larger. But at some point, the top of the element exceeds some reasonable displacement. Um, I guess with respect to you know driving piles to refusal on rock and things like that, again, I, I feel like a lot of times the codes and what what the engineers are doing is just saying the load on the pile is 
you know, 25% of the yield strength of the steel, 30%, 50%, whatever it is. Um, so whether you're mobilizing the, uh, the end bearing strength of the, of the soil or rock, in some ways it's irrelevant because you're, you're still limited to what the, what the steel um, stress is allowed. Um, so in some cases, you're mainly doing a proof test to say, yeah, it'll, it'll support that. But, you know, if there's more there, we can't, we can't take advantage of that, of that anyway. Um, but what about, Greg, what about for a pile-driven refusal in, uh, say, highly glaciated, you know, uh, heavily over-consolidated clay? If you've got a pile, say, a 16-inch closed in a pipe pile driven with, a, I don't know, a D30, and you tip it, you, you, you're at refusal in a clay. A really stiff clay. Um, do the do the do the rules for rock still apply? I don't think they do. Right, right. Yeah, and again, that's it. it people I feel do take pot shots at dynamic testing of it's not mobilizing the ultimate resistance. But as I said before, I feel that same exact argument can be made with a static load test. You still have to uh, move move it enough to mobilize its ultimate strength. And then uh, the bigger point is when you do do that, what's the what's the top of the pile doing, and is that meeting your your performance requirements? Does yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, but I'm, something I'm still hung up a little bit on uh, you, the illustration you made about a drill shaft and sand it just keeps mobilizing. It, it develops more unit uh, unit base resistance as the def deformation keeps increasing. So you keep pushing and it keeps giving you more resistance, but there's some practical limit. Is, is there a practical limit at the strength limit state? So in my mind, the serviceability, that's where it comes the performance, the low settlement performance is mat, governs, but at the strength limit state, and I don't think geotechnical engineers are very good at this, at the strength limit state, shouldn't we be, design, be designing for a state of plunging failure? Yeah, I mean, ideally, with the dynamic test or the static load test, you'll you'll see that in your in your um, in your result that clearly you can throw whatever person's last name you'd like to and call what the ultimate resistance is. But it sure would be nice to see that at some point, as you add load, uh, you can't add any more load. It just it, it it's just displacing without any additional load, a, a plunging failure, and then we kind of know what what that that edge is uh, of the cliff, I guess. All right. All right. I guess moving on into something that you guys also mentioned. Okay. So we talk about the soils and what could be different, but what about the piles? I mean, are we abusing the method for different piles that should not be used for this? I mean, let's start with typical steel age piles, then pipe piles, and then we start kind of expanding right into, is this proper to an overcast pile? Is this, you know, can we say that this is perfectly usable for concrete piles for everything? So I guess, Greg, let's go first with you. Uh, you think it's a technology that we should apply you know i mean it's it's as you say it's science is it's principles is mechanics right it shouldn't really matter what pile are you doing is it you think that's true or you think that there right. are certain piles that you absolutely need to avoid well i mean i would say that you know with the cast in place elements especially those where the geometry is a little bit more unknown that leads to one more uh, uncertainty, if you're already concerned about the toe quakes and some of the variables, say in the signal matching, the um, the um, the geometry is then now also in question. So, you know, a lot of the high strain dynamic testing ass assumes uniformity. Um, we we sometimes have have composite piles, we call them, um, 
you know, with a concrete top for, uh, you know, scour, uh, corrosion resistance, lateral stability, and then maybe an H pile sticking off the bottom that's could be longer than the, the top concrete. Um, and even though that's non-uniform in the signal matching program, we can still, um, you know, we know what that geometry is and can model it. But um, yeah, an uncased drilled shaft or a CFA pile, um, you know, you don't know with certainty what those, what those values are. Um, of course, with, with static load testing and, and putting strain gauges and trying to get unit side shears and things, you're also making some assumptions about maybe the areas and, and some of those. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not as comfortable using that method with a, um, a cast in place pile or one of, of unknown um, geometry. Well, I'll just uh, jump in and say, I mean, the high string dynamic testing is being applied to every deep foundation element we could think of. I mean, my my friend Brandon at uh, GRL in Houston, I mean, he and some of his colleagues are applying it to uh, helical piles, which I think, you know, it's very interesting. I can imagine how complicated that must be. Uh, I, I think there's still a bit of arm waving with respect to interpretation of <clears throat> high string dynamic tests under the best circumstances. And I, I mean, I can only imagine um, how difficult it would be to interpret it for a uh, for a helical pile. Uh, I, I've seen with steel piles, and of course, this test method is done on steel piles all the time, um, but, but steel is relatively flexible. And, and if you have uh, sensitive soils that are prone to that dynamic effects, uh, we can see, I mean, we've, we've seen what, what, what we term unzipping, uh, is that as that pile as a wave propagates down the pile and it's flexible and it sort of uh, like an accordion and the resistance, to the resistance along the pile that's offered by the soil is, is not uniform and, and it unzips with time. And so um, even though the, the measurement itself has been done on these types of piles for, I mean, 50 years now, uh, it's still a phenomenon that happens. It's not well understood, not well publicized. Um, and so I, th I think that's a, that's a drawback to the, to the method itself or, or maybe our understanding of the method. Um, you know, I, the the, per, the perfect pile type, I, like I said, I think are displacement piles that are really stiff. Um, that's that's my experience. For cast in place piles, I I've yet to see one uh, where we actually moved it, mobilized. You know, moved it, had enough set to mobilize a, a reasonable guess at the at the base resistance. I I think that's usually the the drawback. And and to to bring out a a weight or a hammer that's big enough to do it, yeah, then you know, we kind of get the other problem. Now we're overstressing the element and nobody wants to, to break it. Uh, if, if things start cracking the interpretation of strains and, and wave propagation, um, they get pretty hairy pretty quick. Well, I guess, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Paul. My experience is I would say in general, the dynamic testing is provides a more conservative result if um, if it's not close to the static result, um, you know, using driving formulas in the past, I mean, supposedly the EN formulas, you know, based on a safety factor of six, I think, you know, one of the big things with the dynamic testing is we're not pushing things to an unsafe level. I think we're just, you know, yeah. we're, we're trying to get away from safety factors of six and get closer to things like two, two and a half, where there's an economic savings without being so, so, so conservative. Um, and, and I think when I led off the, this, this debate, this rumble, 
you know, again, you know, getting a, a consolidated undrained shear strength test, you know, people think that is the, that's the strength of the soil. And, you know, especially in some softer materials and trying to sample it and get it back to the lab and extrude it. And so that, that answer that's quote unquote, the gold standard has, has some issues with it as well. And, um, you know, some other in situ tests, DMT or CPT with correlations and, and to see trends, I think is, is pretty valuable, especially as a geotechnical engineer, when we know things are not exactly the same from here to, to 20 feet away to 30 feet away, that is it, is it more valuable to have, you know, a thousand data points that may be, you know, 90% of the resistance versus one value that is, you know, supposedly the, the right one at one tip elevation. I just think the amount of information that you get, and if anything, maybe you're a little conservative on those on those capacity values, um, and the, the the price and economy. There's just a lot of great information that you can get that I don't think you're necessarily being unsafe about it. Um, but we're just we're trying to make things more economical. So I'm I'm a I'm a proponent from that standpoint of I get a lot more data. Um, and, and if it's not 100% correct and it's off by a little bit, um, I sometimes would take that over the, just the one point that may be quote unquote perfect, which again, we can debate whether that's the actual number or not. Yeah, I think where you're going, Greg, is perfection is the worst enemy of very good, right? And, and you know, we shouldn't, but interesting. I don't know, Paul, you have anything to add? You're good with that? Uh, I mean, I'm certainly understand and appreciate that perspective. I, I can't disagree with it, but I would say, you know, that when he made the point of, uh, you know, we're trying to get to a factor safety of two or two and a half, I, I guess I would, I would say in reality, that's more like a factor safety of three, three and a half um, because of the, what I think are the lower bound estimates that are being generated. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the, in the idea of being sustainable and economical and whatnot, uh, I think we can do better. I think we should do better. What about the history on this factor of safety too? Because I mean, I sometimes feel that we were sold this promise, especially when we go to LRFD, that you know it was going to be a lot of calibrations and this this resistant factor, you know, with PA was going to change and it's going to come closer to 1.0. You know, I'm like getting closer and closer. Uh, I guess starting with you, Paul, you think in the industry we really have advanced in the last 20 years to get this closer, or you think that it was a promise that I don't know, it just stay there and we. We keep doing PDAs, we keep doing static load tests, but we don't really try to close that gap. I mean, it's kind of going into what you were saying on the factor of safety. I, I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. So when I first started my career for the first, I don't know, eight or 10 years, we were still using ASD design, uh, where the factor of safety basically included all the unknown and where the geotechs, geotechnical engineers made their mistakes, at least in my mind, the, the geotechnical engineer did not own that entire factor of safety. All of the unknown and uncertainty from the loads and from the structural side and construction side were also dumped into that factor of safety. And so the, we sort of had these blinders on that said, okay, well, I got a factor of safety of three. Well, not really. Uh, you, you may only own half of that factor of safety. So from that perspective, I think the, the switch to LRFD, uh, it's, a, it's a much more logical design framework in my mind. I'm a big proponent of the LRFD design approach. Have we closed the gap and are we getting better? I think it's just the same, to be honest with you. I don't know that we've, I don't know that we've really furthered our understanding of foundation performance and, and, and included or are taking advantage of those, um, 
performance-based specs. I mean, I, most Ashto code is right now isn't performance-based really. I mean, it's a it's a capacity-based approach. Uh, and so I think there's still some low-hanging fruit that we could that we could grab. And I and I and I truly believe that we are starting to head this way with some of the the research that FHWA is is funding, uh, where we might be rethinking, uh, you know, limit states. Um, I think we're going the right direction, but I don't think the needles move very far so far, Sebastian. All right, Greg, you want to answer that? Yeah, I don't. I don't understand all the statistics part, and I know Paul, your your colleague there, Eric, has done a bunch with with some of this uh, resistance factors and and things like that. But yeah, we've just kind of taken the inverse of the safety factor, so to speak, at, at this point. Um, I guess for me, a little bit of the hard thing is, you know, if you have 50 KSI steel that comes out of the mill, you know, there's just, there's statistics about, you know, how close to 50 is that every time? And it's a man-made manufactured material. And it's it's pretty darn close to 50 every single time. With soil, you know, like I said, you know, what's the... What, what's the right answer? It depends on the time. You know, even when we're doing these tests at a week, two weeks after, you know, the, the, the building might not be, you know, loading these foundations for months to months. So, um, you know, are you getting additional uh, resistance in, in the system over time, you know, with pile caps and groups, you know, are you, um, you know, densifying soils and actually making the resistance higher than just the the test pile sitting alone out in the field, you know the the group effects that you know with overlapping and sharing. So a lot of the focus is on a single element, which we all know, you know, not that's not necessarily the norm, especially on buildings where you have caps contacting the ground, et cetera, et cetera. So our focus is purely on this test at this time at this tip elevation. But as Paul alludes to, you know, the static load, deflection curve, that's how the pile is going to behave. And I get that, but that's not necessarily how it's going to behave in the end product with, with the rest of the, of, the, of the structural system around it either. So um, we, we may sharpen the pencil and get closer and closer and closer, but is it, are we really gonna get to the in situ performance of, of the element once, once we're all done? I'm not sure. Paul, anything to add? You're satisfied with that answer? Yeah, I mean, I, I come from the bridge world where we have to design for scour. And so a lot of the time, a lot of things Greg's talking about, uh, the mat or the, the cap in contact with the soil, that's not included in the design because it's it's wished away due to some a lot of things uh, that are different than the building world. So I, I have no heartburn with what Greg said. I mean, I, I agree we're we're making a measurement at a time, a certain time, and it's not the it's not the final configuration, but uh, it's the best we can do for now. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the, this round is to get the consensus that we're really, we're really getting to that point, right? Realizing limitations and, and things like that. But I guess one aspect that we didn't really touch that much, or I think we mentioned a little bit, but not really explored it, is the user dependent, right? I mean, it's obviously we know that it depends a lot on who is doing the, who's doing the test, you know, what are they using, what is specific data point, what is specific, you know. So, I mean, do you think that you know, what is the average experience that we need really in practice for someone to do this? I mean, do you think it's a dangerous thing that is like that? Uh, obviously, you know, GRL and, and PDI and all that, they have certifications that people can take. And, you know, obviously you can, you should have one of those certifications to really professionally do one of these tests, right? Uh, but do you think it's it's enough or, or you think that a technology that is that dependent on that, 
should really progress into a, into another direction. Like, w w let me just explain it a different way. Anyone can read a dial gauge doing a, a static load test, right? And, and I mean, if it's a calibrated, if it's a calibrated gauge and all that, it's, there is, there is little mistake or potential for mistake on somebody making a reading. But when we go to PDA, it's a whole different world, right? It, it depends in so many variables. So what, what's your opinion on, on that, Greg? I mean, you think that, that, you know, in reality is not a problem and the industry has a very good standard to making sure that every operator that is doing that is doing a good job? Or you think that it's something that could be done better? Yeah, I think I think as engineers, there's a responsibility for, you know, it's like with finite elements and things like that. I mean, garbage in, garbage out, right? And so I think the key is recognizing when you have garbage going in and, and don't report results and things like that. Um, so yeah, there has to be some level of, of um, comfort that I know good data and I know bad data. And if it's it's good data, and again, you know, CAPWAP signal matching aside, you know, some case method um, just just based on the raw data can get you, you know, at least is it 300 kips, is it 700 kips type thing, and you know the the, the variables you put in, you know, are known with with some certainty. But um, yeah, I think I think, and I I hate to say it, but I've seen some data, I peer reviewed it, and I, I'm shocked at at um, you know, some of the rule dynamic testing 101 rules seem to be seem to be broken um, by people that I think have been doing the testing for quite some time. So, yeah, I, I think the the quote unquote certification process is a good thing. Um, if you sit through the class and are a good test taker, <laughs> you might could get a good grade. And if you've been doing the testing for 25 years and maybe aren't a great test taker, you know, maybe you don't get quite as good a grade. So there's just because you have a, a certification or a certain level, I'm not sure that it's always 100%, but at least it shows you sat through a class and have gone through and, and know what data is supposed to look like and sort of the basics of, of um, you know, use two, two strain gauges and, and things like that. Um, and to know when the data I collected is just not, it's not, it's not valuable. Um, sometimes I see, you can't unsee things I used to tell my kids when they get on the internet. If you see something, you can't unsee it. And I there's engineers that, um, you know, with CSL or PDA, they see the data and I look at it and say, oh, that result is just, it's not right because the data collection is poor. Um, and then I they always want me to justify, well, it said it was X. You know, now you're telling me that's not right. And it's almost like no data is better than that that incorrect data that they, you know, you can't unsee that and, and some people just can't get it out of their mind. So yeah, I think in some ways we do need to police it and make sure that there, there is the operators and the person doing the analysis and writing the report has some understanding of the method. I think a bigger picture is, as Paul maybe is alluding to, that if we're just testers versus engineers doing a test as well, um, just reporting the data and not saying in a footnote, maybe somewhere that at this relatively high blow count, the, the number we're presenting in this report is not the ultimate, you know, you have to understand that. And um, I think I think some testers may do a disservice that that number in the table that's showing up, I'm telling you is a conservative number. Um, it's not it's not gospel. Excellent, Paul. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> the certification, certainly it's a step in the right direction. I, I can appreciate the intent of, uh, of raising the bar. Uh, and I truly believe that is the intent. 
uh, whether the bar has been raised, I'm not so sure. And I won't just say that to certification. I mean, uh, a lot of people have a professional engineering license. Uh, what, what does it take to get that? A little bit of experience and passing the test. It really doesn't have anything to do with your ethics or your integrity uh, or, or beyond the test, your ability to do engineering. Uh, I think the certification could be seen in the same light. And as long, and as, long as we're in a low bid world, as long as we operate in the low bid world, it's going to be a race to the bottom. And any commodity, which testing could become, will will be pushing the boundaries of uh, ethical or, or, or a person of integrity um, who knows, like Greg said, when, when he sees garbage in and garbage out, uh, with, in the low bid environment, that's a race to the bottom. Uh, it doesn't, some of those people may not care that it's garbage in, garbage out. They're the low bid offer, uh, and they got the work because they're cheap. Uh, I don't, I don't know how that could change with certification. All right. Well, this absolutely was a fascinating discussion. Right. I, I just have to say thank you to both of you for, you know, for joining us today. As I said, it, it's an extremely nerdy conversation, and I don't know that many people that will be willing to go to this extent, especially on a Friday afternoon. So. That is highly appreciated. And I think we, we said a lot of things that are good. I mean, we, we did not intend any disrespect to, to, to the method, to the technology, to the industry. We just questioned things that I think every engineer that has been working with these tools will have in their mind. And it's nice to have an open discussion about them, correct? Yeah, yeah. I think that they did very well, uh, Sebastian. Um, you know, no blood spilled, just a few scratches, I would say. Difference in opinion, <laughs> difference in opinion, I would say. Difference in opinion, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think uh, I really like how the conclusion round three came all together at uh, both of them alluding at the same uh, factors and parameters that we have to really, really look into, um, you know, uh, for a successful design and also, you know, um, helping the client build the right thing and, you know, uh, Paul and Greg actually talked about what is important to learn um, with the experience and using the technology and using, you know, how to read the um, results that we get out of the PDA and other testing uh, devices that we have. Um, I really like and uh, Paul also gave a very good ending to certification how important it is it doesn't mean that if you have PE, you know, um, that is the end of it and everything you say is, we have to take it. Um, that's really good. And uh, we have had these conversations in uh, many of the other um, episodes as well. And uh, um, I really have to say, like, you know, valuable conclusions from both of you. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Greg. And, uh, you know, this, this, this has been fascinating. As Sebastian said, there will be a lot of people who will be coming up to you and uh, engaging you, shaking your hand and engaging you in more discussions of what we just spoke about uh, the next time they see you. Um, so this concludes the episode of DFI Rumble. Um, so we have to ask our listeners, don't forget to comment who won in this area. Was it Paul Axtelt, uh, who is a reviewer, or Greg Canewan, who actually does the PDA testing, you know, knows a lot more about how the testing is done, um, or the industry? Let us know what you think. Thank you so much to all of you. All right. Thank you. On behalf of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcasts are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. 
DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Sponsored by ECA. Thanks for your time. Keep on surviving.